Welcome to 30 Brave Minutes, a podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 30 Brave Minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. I'm Richard Gay, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and with me are Associate Deans Ashley Allen and Joanna Hersey. Joining us from the UNC Pembroke Kids in the Garden program are Rita Hagevic and Caitlin Campbell from the Department of Biology and Martin Farley from the Department of Geology and Geography. Now get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. Thanks so much for being here with us today, everyone. I thought that maybe we would start with just some very brief introductions about um, you know, the departments that you're in, but also maybe your areas of research interest, and then go straight into what the Kids in the Garden program is. So my name is uh, Rita Hegovic, and I'm a professor in the Department of Biology. I am the Director of Graduate Programs in uh, Science Education. And my research is focused on sustainability, agriculture, environmental education, and the use particularly of GIS and other technologies in the teaching of science. Hi, I'm Dr. Caitlin Campbell. I'm an associate professor in the biology department. I'm also the assistant chair. And in the biology department, uh, the research that I do, I love working with the undergrads there. And we do a lot of research related to pollinator conservation. So we've studied butterflies, hoverflies, honeybees, native bees, and I also do just insect ecology in general. So ants are another special interest of mine. I'm Martin Farley. I'm a professor of geology and chair of the Department of Geology and Geography. My research specialty is called palynology, which is uh, officially uh, the study of organic world microfossils, which includes a whole host of um, fossils, but uh, principally you could say pollen and spores. And for our podcast today, uh, the project we're doing, I've in a sense gone biological to um, consider uh, modern pollen uh, associated with uh, the Kids in the Garden project. Wonderful. Thanks so much, you guys. Rita, would you mind telling us how Kids in the Garden started? And what's involved here? So um, basically, uh, the three of us came together and um, just thought of what our interest areas uh, were and what we could do, you know, for schools and also to involve the undergraduate students um, in research. So we came up with this idea and submitted it to Burroughs Welcome. So the grant is funded by uh, a student science enrichment grant from Bur the Burroughs Welcome Foundation. So we need to mention our funders, but over time, other smaller funds have been added to the program. That's what's so fun about these kinds of programs. But basically um, the idea, the program is for middle and high school students and also teachers in schools to support them in STEM activities around uh, pollinator conservation and uh, pollinator research. Um, there's Saturday morning um, activities throughout the year. There's a BQ the last two weeks in June. Uh, we have an outreach booth um, that, of course, the pandemic did change things, but was pretty, pretty much has pretty, pretty consistent an outreach event once a month somewhere. 
Um, and uh, at local community uh, events, we have a garden and apiary at UNCP now, and there are tours and outreach events there. Uh, we have a curriculum called Be the Change that we use with the schools. Um, and we've established six uh, school gardens in three different um, counties. So the undergraduate students serve as something we call STEM ambassadors. And the Campus Garden Apiary is a student run. And there's a uh, garden manager that's a student. Um, and so that's worked out great. It's amazing what students at UNCP are capable of actually. And they've been a huge success in the program and serving as near peer mentors for the middle and high school students, very important. That's great, Rita. Thank you so much. Can you talk about what elements need to be in place to make a program like this run well? Uh, great colleagues. I think an openness to the students' ideas. And then I think the other thing is partnerships. Partnerships outside of the university. Over this course of this project, we've added lots and lots of partners who have all contributed their own piece to the project um, and made it, you know, just really great for everyone. Yeah, Rita, I want to add to that about the students and their ideas that they have. Um, we've had some really innovative garden managers that just get really pumped about everything. And um, but our garden managers and all the interns that were working, they would, you know, do some really fun thing for the holidays. Um, we had arts and crafts for everybody to do and anybody that came could enjoy it. We made s'mores at the campfire and everything. It had hot chocolate and hot cider. Yeah, they had a springtime in the garden too, another event like that to just celebrate spring. You know, when I came in, I actually didn't do pollinator research. It's because of this program that I started doing it because it was really, we had this wonderful garden so we could do all of, you know, all of the pollinator research with all the flowers out there. I had so many questions when I walked in that garden, like, what is there? And then these students were like, well, you know, I don't know if I want to work on bees, but could I work on butterflies? Uh, okay. I don't know that much about butterflies. Let's do it. And then they become the experts and they really lead a lot of the research. So I found that really exciting and just opened up a whole new area that I wasn't working on before. So um, one of the questions I would like to know more about is how our students at UNCP are involved. You've already mentioned a couple of really interesting things, and I would like to hear more about this near-peer mentorship program. Could you tell us a bit more about that, please, and other ways that UNCP students are involved? Yeah, maybe, Rita, maybe I can talk about that a little bit with the near-peer mentorship. I think that's referring to how we had the um, undergrads mentoring the high schoolers and middle schoolers that were doing their research projects um, for the science fair. And this was really helpful. I was on maternity leave for one of the semesters during this program. And the undergraduate students were already doing research with me for like the semester before. So they were very comfortable, um, you know, working with the students on these topics. And the, uh, the high schoolers had to come up with totally new projects to work on. Um, but they were able to mentor them. Uh, for example, one of them was related to um, aggression in honeybee hives. And um, I went out like one time, I think, but the rest of the time, the undergrads were, were running the show. And so they would uh, swat at the front of the beehive with a glove and then toss the glove at the hive. And then they would uh, give them a couple minutes and then grab that glove really quick and put it in a Ziploc bag and see how many bees have tried to attack that glove. 
And then they would go and measure you know, how many resources were in the hive and relate that back with some statistics. And the students, the undergraduate students were able to mentor the high school students on this process because they were comfortable already working in beehives and they understood how science works at that point. So that's, I think, really valuable to be able to teach other people how to do science. You really learn it so much deeper. And they, they really helped us out because they're adults, you know, and they drive and, you know, they're responsible, our students. Um, you know, so, sometimes we had a time conflict. So we had students who were presenting at the state science fair in Raleigh, and we had students that were presenting in another competition in Durham. Okay, you can't be in two cities at the same time. So then the, the, we had students who would volunteer to take the students to the Durham competition while we were for <laughs> all the competition. So, you know, there is always too much to do on a project like this. And the students, I think, really uh, enjoy stepping up. I mean, I really feel like everybody benefited, you know. They got a lot of pleasure out of helping the, the students and sharing their research with the kids. And then, you know, of course, the students made sure that, you know, everybody was su successful. So uh, Martin took students to science conferences. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, how that worked? I do want to talk a little bit about that. And everything that um, Caitlin and Rita have said so far is true. And there's no doubt, too, that having undergraduates involved in the project was useful in a, in a mentoring capacity. Uh, they could do things in the lab that the grade students couldn't too. And their participation in things like the Saturday workshops meant there were more people around to help explain to the fairly large number of middle and high school students uh, what they were seeing, for example, in the microscope, which uh, Rita talked about how it was impossible to be in both Durham and um, Raleigh at the same time. Well, it's more or less impossible for one expert on pollen to be looking down six or seven microscopes at one time too. So the undergraduates were invaluable for that sort of application as well. Right, yeah, definitely collecting the data, looking at the video, marking the videos. The students did the work, but you know, they need supervision, especially when they're doing real research um, at that age. And, um, you know, they're motivated and enthusiastic. They just need a little guidance, yeah. I love that. So for the middle and high school students, if you had to choose, you know, the main skills that they're getting by being part of the program, what would those skills be? And in terms of getting into colleges that they want to go to, you know, I'm assuming this helps them a great deal, actually, to have done real research before they even get to an institution like that. That's crazy. One of the skills they're getting, I'm not sure I'd call it, skill exactly is they're being socialized into what science and scientific research is really like and they're finding out that although whatever they may have learned in high school might have made them think that science or scientific research is something that only Albert Einstein can do it's something that they can actually do when we took the high school students to the North Carolina Academy of Science meeting at High Point, and they set up the posters and the other posters there were mostly from undergraduates from particularly from these um, expensive private colleges and they went around to look at these other posters and discovered that they were doing work that 
least as good as these other college students. And they learned, I can do this too. And that's a very important lesson. Well, I, I love that yeah. you pushed those boundaries for them in a way. I mean, you're sort of their advocates in those spaces by saying, you know, we are bringing them and they are going to showcase their research. Um, it sounds like with the undergraduate students, they had a lot of leadership responsibilities. So I feel like not only are they growing as scientists, but they're also growing as leaders, right? So hopefully when they do graduate, they have that extra set of um, social type skills that are going to help them succeed. But if you had to pick a skill that you feel like your undergraduates are walking away with that you think was the most important. What would you, what would you say? Uh, I just want to say something really quick and then everybody else can chime in. But one thing that I think happened to me personally that happened to them too, <laughs> so this is a mutual happen to you, they became like the ambassadors. So that's what we, that's what they started calling themselves. And um, conservation and environmental ambassadors. And they started telling everybody about their research and about how important it was. So I really think it's becoming involved in something that's real. And Caitlin can talk more about this than Martin can too, but the amount of published literature on this topic has exploded in the last just couple of years, but we started this more than two years ago. So we were just on the on the start of something and those kids knew it. They knew it was important. So I think doing real real research that's important that you're contributing to the field is critical. Yeah, I, I want to add to that. Um, I think the the key skills that the students get out of you know doing these projects and working with the students, the one that you said, Ashley, leadership that's so important. Being able to lead and then that gives them the confidence to be able to go on and do other things that are going to require leadership. Um, the other is uh, the ability to communicate well and they're learning to communicate with us, they're learning to communicate um, their science in a way that other people can understand that at these outreach booths for people that are not scientists and then at scientific meetings for people that are scientists to young children or you know people younger than them, not that much younger, that don't know that much about science at all, but really are interested in it. And I just, I think science communication is so important. And I try to also incorporate that in all of my classes. Um, but seeing, I, one of them, like, it really gets to my heart and it, it, like I get tears in my eyes. Seeing my students, gosh, just a moment. This makes me joyful. You're so passionate about it. It makes me happy. Yeah, seeing my students, presenting their posters from a project that they started knowing nothing about it to the end. They're standing there. I just, I just want to give them a big hug. <laughs> I do. Piggybacking <laughs> on Caitlin, they're often afraid when they go. Uh, we got invited to present at a big meeting at BASF in Raleigh. They invite all the big universities. They invite undergrads and grads graduate students who are doing agriculture-related research. That's why we got contacted. They were scared, I mean, to go there. And it was not just presenting your research. It was a whole day where they talk, you know, scientists talk to them. Like, it was like the recruiting, like, come join us here when you graduate, <laughs> you know? And then they have presentations and then they had awards. Caitlin talked her students, some of the kids into going, you have to talk them into it. 
and that were in the project and they want Caitlin took them and one of the students won an award and won money. So it's just, it's getting them, you know, helping them and supporting them to go because you're right, confidence, I would say gaining confidence is a big issue, at least with the students at UNCP. They don't have the confidence. They have the ability. They are capable, but they don't necessarily have the confidence and they're sometimes intimidated by the other people around them. You know, one of the things that, that goes with all this is what we could call adaptability too, mm -hmm. because if I had drawn up a list of the background characteristics that would have been ideal for students to work on this project, relatively few of the students that certainly I worked with would have had most of these characteristics, but uh, it didn't matter. It turns out uh, that they can learn, they can adapt, they can become high performers in the project. And um, I think it's a, a broad lesson for undergraduate research in the sciences here at UNCP that um, the faculty shouldn't be waiting around for some perfect student to show up to collaborate with them on a project. You can um, use the students who are around. When we started, we had to work some effort to recruit students. And then after the project got going, that was no longer an issue. We were sort of famous and uh, students were coming <laughs> first. And that sounds like there's a huge impact on the community as well, right? Because the, the students that you're working with at all levels, both as undergraduates and younger students are going out into the community as the ambassadors that you were talking about, Rita, earlier. So could you talk a little bit perhaps about the, the impact on the community at large? Well, we have uh, citizen science projects that we do. Mm -hmm. So those, of course, become, you know, national uh, projects that, uh, that that we contribute to. So you have an impact um, there. Uh, we have uh, developed a partnership with the Lumbee Tribe, of course. Uh, Caitlin does service learning out there um, and the tribe garden out there. And we do outreach events through for the, for the tribe. We also have partnered with um, the Locklears and Newground Farms, Ape and Bees, because they are beekeepers. The pollinator gardens in the schools, of which one is at the central office of Robeson County Public Schools. And so that is like now known throughout the county. So that's like spread throughout the county. That is a migrant education garden. So that has now spread to migrant education and those that pop, those families. Um, and that was also being funded on the food side. So after you pick the vegetables and cook them by Chapel Hill, they're a nutrition project. So then we got connected there. So these types of projects do tend to just spread throughout, you know, the community. And yeah, I wanted to add in when you mentioned the new ground farm um, with the Locklears. We do take our students out there during the summer camp and they get to um, a couple of times they've actually, you know, given them food that they grew at the place. And that could have been the first time they've actually eaten something literally just out of the ground. And I think that really impacts them. They're also just really wonderful, kind people, very knowledgeable about sustainable agriculture. Um, we've had some of our undergrads do research at their site um, because they don't 
necessarily use all of the land uh, all the time. They don't always farm everything. Um, and we've helped him uh, set up for an experimental study of cucumber disease. And so I had a couple of students looking at pests of disease on cucumbers to help him solve a problem. And they were, they were interns too with the campus garden. So they spend some of their time doing research at the campus garden and some of their time doing research elsewhere out in the community. Yeah, the students, just like the middle and high school students, they seem to find their niche, whatever their interests are. And the undergrads too, right, Caitlin and Martin, they seem to find their niche. Some are really interested in pollen and they love microscopes, so they go work on pollen. Some love butterflies, some love bees, some just want to grow plants, some just love sunflowers. So they kind of find, you know, where they settle yeah, I've noticed like some, you know, they have preferences for if they want to be outside more or indoors more. And there's always plenty to do with sorting specimens and pinning insects inside, looking under microscopes. And some people are like, I just really want to go out and watch some flowers and see what visits, you know, like live action, outside stuff instead. And the pollen research is more involves more chemistry. So if they like more chemistry, then they're going to go work on pollen. <laughs> yeah. And and of course, when you find something you're really interested in, it. it makes learning that much more fun and it doesn't seem like work right it's just a, a passion that you have and you guys are clearly sharing your passions with the, with these students and it really is inspiring for all of us this is chancellor robin cummings and i want to thank you for listening to 30 brave minutes our faculty and students provide expertise energy and passion driving our region forward our commitment to Southeast North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Denver. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at untp.edu slash give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. One of the questions I, I have uh, is about all this great research you're doing, right? I've heard about many projects you've, you've, you've talked about already today. I would love to see some of the specific results of it. And I can't always attend the conferences to review the papers or the posters that are presented. So is there any place where we can see some of these really interesting results you must be finding? We do share some of our results on our Facebook page. You know, if we see something interesting out there, we want to share it. Um, we also are working on publications. I have a student that's working on uh, publishing information about her butterfly research. She was, this was really a fun project. It was Imani. Uh, she was out there every day marking butterflies with little paint pens, and she would catch them and mark them and then release them in different colors for each day, and she could tell how long butterflies lived or used our garden at least. And I think that's really interesting because some butterflies can live for weeks, months, you know, monarch butterflies can overwinter in Mexico, but most butterflies have such short little lives, <laughs> but they're so important out there and they do what they can in their few days that they have. Um, and so, yeah, they're actually the number of recaptures that she got were pretty low. Uh, so that tells you how deadly it is to be a, a butterfly out there. Um, but I'm also working on a paper with another uh, student that's about the hoverfly work that she uh, worked on for years. <laughs> and I had her, I was so excited to get her as a freshman. So we kept her through the like years that she was here and uh, she worked on like all the projects. 
Um, and her hoverfly work has been really interesting. We were comparing the uh, number of hoverflies. They're like, uh, they're flies and they, they look like wasps kind of, they're black and yellow. They visit flowers and pollinate. Um, she was looking at the hoverflies in the garden uh, versus the pine cottage lawn area. And you could see like such a difference. The pollinator garden has such a huge impact in bringing in pollinators and sustaining them over there. And over in the garden, you have like just a couple species and very, very low abundance. Um, so we did lots of those comparison things against Pine Cottage. Pine Cottage lawn is only like, I don't know, 100 meters away or less. Mm -hmm. So they could go over there, but there's nothing to do there. There's nothing good there to eat. Okay. And in terms of like the total number of bees that we found out there, it's incredible how much bee diversity we've had. Um, something like 60 species of bees just in that garden. So oh. that is a lot. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're pretty proud of those numbers. And that's just surveying really during the summer. So there's a lot that are active more in the spring and the fall as well. So it's a special habitat. And we've published and our results on citizen science. We have a book chapter that's in the works now. It'll be published any day. And we're also publishing some of the lesson plans in NSTA journals and sharing, you know, kind of the how-to, do you do this in your classroom with teachers? So we've developed a tremendous amount of curriculum from this project. It's really pretty impressive. Um, just out of probably uh, desperation. <laughs> <laughs> but over time it's evolved you know I mean you know how, you, you come up with these great ideas but then you have to figure out how to teach it right Caitlin has a, a beekeeping class now that she teaches that's come out of this project and then of course those lesson plans get out to a broader audience and have even more impact beyond the you know just our, our local community here so uh, your work has is very uh, far-reaching it sounds like Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are internet. Those journals are international. They go all over the world. I can say in my own personal garden, I've noticed this year I've had, um, I don't know if it's because of the time that I've been in the garden or, or what, but I feel like I've had a lot less in terms of um, pollinators, butterflies. I haven't seen a lot of butterflies this year, mm -hmm. where in some years they're just everywhere. And uh, I feel like I've noticed a really strong change lately. Have you guys seen any trends like that in the pollinator garden on campus in terms of numbers? Um, so we did measure the bees out there for four years, I think. Um, and the very first year, it I think that was the year we had the most, actually. But I think it was because I was collecting um, compared to the undergrads collecting. So, <laughs> you know, researchers have different abilities. I've been catching bugs for a long time. Uh, I can swipe pretty quick and I can see the little ones. So that year we had the most. But other than that, I don't think there were any really strong um, changes throughout the year. Um, some years when we had a lot of rain, it, the, when we go out there, we wouldn't be able to catch many because they love the sunny days. Um, so that can also influence the sampling. But one thing that has changed a lot is our native bee houses that we put out. You know, we started out with like one or two or something out there, right, Rita? So these are like little tubes that you put out. You can see them. They're set in stores and stuff. They're not for honeybees. They're for like mason bees and leafcutter bees that are solitary, non-aggressive native bees. And you put them out and the bees just, you build it and they come and they just uh, will go and use those tubes. And so every year, I think since we put them out, we've been uh, collecting the cocoons that they put in there in the fall so we can protect them for the winter. And we put them in a fridge over winter. We count them all and we see 
um, what different species there are that end up hatching out, and then we release them back at the garden. And with that, there's been a huge number of increase, a huge increase in the number of cocoons that we've gotten. We've also put out more houses, but even then, I think just the per house, more cocoons. And you see the ones that have been there the longest have, are being used more frequently and with more cocoons in them than the others too. So um, that's been really interesting. People often ask us, you know, well, what should we, you know, we want to help pollinators too. What should we plant? And uh, we can share with them our data. And we have lists now for our area that shows which things you are going to get the most, you know, pollinators going. <laughs> and and which yeah. ones are good for native bees and which ones are good for butterflies, right? And what, yeah, does, when, what do the hoverflies like? So it's good that we can share that with them. Yeah, and so in the summer of 2019, we spent 70 hours, uh, person hours out there watching flowers uh, in these plots that were a meter squared each. And I had a, you know, a whole team of undergrads, so it wasn't like I had to sit out there for 70 hours. But in total, every person was sitting for 15 minutes looking at the flowers. They count all the flowers that were in that plot and then just count all the visits for everything and categorize them. Was it a butterfly, a hoverfly, a, a bumblebee, a honeybee or whatever? Um, and so then you can make cool pie charts and be like, these are the things that this visit this plant you can make cool bar charts that show like this plant is off the charts in terms of number of visitors that it gets it's really neat to see which ones are preferred by different groups and it's it's pretty consistent you know like you can be like this is a really good flower for honeybees in particular or honeybees don't visit pretty much anything except this thing in the garden one that honeybees love was the mountain mint uh, that was a huge nectar producer. And really, honeybees don't visit a lot of our flowers in the garden. What they want are huge fields of stuff all blooming simultaneously because they recruit um, their sisters to go visit those flowers. And so if it's not a big enough patch, it's not worth it. Our garden is really great for the native bees. And bumblebees are, you know, they prefer the blues and purple flowers. And hoverflies love the yellows and the white flowers and a lot of the little native plants. And we have a state-registered apiary at the garden, and so we've been become involved with some of the local beekeeping associations. Every county has one: Scotland County, Robeson County, and we've been been invited to speak. We've been to their meetings. They come and talk to our students. So just the honeybee work has been. Yeah, you know, really rewarding too. One of the things that I think is really interesting is when I talk to beekeepers in particular, um, I'll go talk at, you know, state, you know, county beekeepers associations and they they love the honeybee and they want to know as much as possible about the honeybee, but they don't really think about all the other bees and they don't realize how many species of bees there are out there, uh, these native bees and that honeybees aren't even native to the U.S., Honeybees are actually a mascot then because they get people interested. They're the ones that make the honey. No other bees do that. And they're the bees that are pollinating most of our crops. And the other bees do that, but not as well. You can't bring in the thousands of native bees and drop them off at a site and have them pollinate those trees. So we're very reliant on the honeybee and it is very important. And it gives you kind of an opening to talk about the other bees. Like, don't forget about these ones too. Um, and there's 4,000 other native bees in the U.S., and the honeybee is a single bee species that we rely on for so much. Uh, so that really puts it in perspective. I hate to put you on the spot, but would you pick a bee, be, uh, a, a solitary bee perhaps, and, and tell us something about that that we can watch out for in our own gardens? 
Oh, sure. Yeah, I think a great one for that would be the leaf cutter bees. Leaf cutter bees are super cute. They look kind of like honeybees. They're usually kind of black with whitish yellow stripes on them. Um, and they're very pointy on their tail end. They have a bunch of fuzz on the underside of their bellies. And they use that fuzz uh, to collect the pollen. And sometimes you'll see this bee with just a whole bunch of yellow packed on its belly. They don't have the pollen baskets on their legs like honeybees. But what I think is just super cute about them is that they cut out perfect little round circles out of leaves. They're called leaf cutters for a reason. They have these huge jaws and they cut out perfect circles. So if you see like on your rose bush or pea plant or something, you see these circles cut out. Don't be upset about that. That's your little native leaf cutter bee coming and it, it cuts out this leaf, it holds it under its legs and then it, it flies off and puts it into one of those tubes. So it'll find a hollow twig somewhere and it'll line the inside of that and then lay its egg and put that pollen from its belly with the egg. And then it'll, you know, close it off with another leaf and go get some more leaves and start doing another little one. And eventually those babies are going to grow up and come out the next year. So the mama doesn't make big colonies or anything. She's not aggressive. And they're just, they're so cute. I love them so much. I'm going to go home and check all of my plants for little round circles now. I love that. Well, um, I would love to end by just talking about what is next for kids in the garden. I know that the Burroughs Welcome Fund funding is coming to an end, but our uh, campus garden apiary is alive and well. And so I'm just curious as to what the what your plans are. I think for me with the campus garden apiary, we're still using that space as an awesome outreach location. And it never would have gotten that way if it wasn't for the Kids in the Garden program. And now we have all these fun things we can do, like we have, you know, honey tasting and we have our outreach booth. We have, you know, the citizen science projects that we've started. So we can do lots of teacher trainings related to some of these programs that we've come up with, these, uh, you know, lessons that we have. We go visit schools too. Um, for the, the apiary, it's it's going to be there. I'll, I'll keep it going. We have nine hives right now and uh, getting ready to sell some more honey. So it'll be there. People can come take tours. It's perfect for the beekeeping class. And um, it's the mascot for all bees out there. And the, 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 the this program has really kind of changed into something much bigger. Um, we now have a agricultural degree emphasis in the biology department and the uh, space, which what kind of was a dream of mine, but I didn't think it would happen, <laughs> but it did, has become a classroom space too. So it's more than just a like garden where people do things and kids can come and have programs. Now it's actually a teaching space for the uh, university, which I think is awesome. There's a whiteboard under the shelter. Caitlin got Wi-Fi put out there. I mean, it's very, it's a very usable teaching space. So I think that the program's just gotten bigger. We uh, took our ideas and applied for a large USDA grant with Utah State University, and we got that. Uh, that is a $6.8 million grant. And so that will take what we've done to the national level um, because that's what USDA is interested. They want to take this to the national level. And um, we do have spots for undergraduates from UNCP, reserve spots for them to study at Utah. Now we just got to 
talk them into going to Utah in the summer for eight weeks <laughs> to do research. There's funds in there to support them to do that, which would be an awesome experience. That project is has over 20 people, 20 collaborators from three different countries. It's a very large project. Multiple, it's a multi-state project. So we're pretty excited about that. I just want to say thank you so much for being here with us today, just sharing about Kids in the Garden um, and the important work that you've been doing with our students, with students in the community, and the huge impact that it's had both on our direct community, on our students, on our programming, and uh, sharing with us a little bit about how it's going to continue to have an impact um, across the nation. And I think, I think that's awesome. And I can't wait to bring you guys back in the future and hear about how that work is going. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was edited and transcribed by Joanna Hersey, and our theme music was composed by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of GNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure the information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves!